Welcome back, Tiger fans, to Rockin' Nation's football podcast. I'm Nate Edwards. That's Brandon BK Kylie, and this is Before the Box Score. Hurricane season cometh. Hurricane season take it away. Uh, BK, we're still nice and dry. How are you doing? Man, um, from what I understand, and we are recording this uh, just as a full disclosure on Tuesday night. Um, as of right now, as of recording, it sounds like it is possible Mizzou versus LSU will be played at 11 a.m. instead of 8 p.m. in Columbia. And I'm very much in favor of all of those changes. <laughs> uh, yeah, we, you and I did not want to podcast after dark. You certainly didn't want to have to write your takeaways uh, after midnight o'clock. So that is a solid development, but obviously at the expense of a poor development for our friends down in Louisiana. So we will see uh, what the SEC says. It sounds like they're going to make an announcement at 9 o'clock tomorrow, uh, 9 a.m. tomorrow, so we'll find out at that point. Um, but we are still kind of licking our wounds from the Tennessee game. Uh, I did my beyond-the-box score today, and we've had a couple of days to digest. I mean, BK, any additional thoughts after re-watching the game or just kind of percolating on your thoughts a little bit? Yes, actually. Uh, glad you asked, Nate. I went back oh, and rewatched all of Connor Bazelak's um, throws against all of his pass hmm. attempts against Tennessee, and I came away more impressed than after first watch. Now, hmm. I thought he played well on first watch and deserved to be the starter going into the game this weekend against LSU. I leave the game having watched it a second time, thinking he was awesome in this game. Now, there were two <laughs> plays where he just... Bad mistakes. One was the interception that basically ended any comeback attempt in that game early in the fourth quarter. Can't make that throw. Tried to throw it across his body with the defender right in his face. Just tried to do too much. It was something that you critiqued Sean Robinson for in the first game where it was like, I'm going to mm-hmm. make something happen. That was Basilek in that moment, and it just it went poorly for him, ended with an interception, and that was the end of Mizzou's comeback bid, trying to make it a one-score game. Um, the other one was a sack that he took where he's just he's got to feel the pressure. It came on the blind side. It happens. He's a young quarterback. It's going to happen again to him. It happens to a lot of young quarterbacks. So that's not quite as concerning for him. But, I mean, I went back and watched, man. He had some really, really impressive throws. The throw to Dominic Jacinto, he probably wanted to throw put a little bit more under that, but... It went 46 yards in the air to a wide-open slot receiver. He's just got to catch it. It was just dropped, and it should have been 45 yards. Um, I went back and did something because I was curious because we we talked about it after the game. There was a lot of drops, right? And if you simply added the dropped passes to what his final stat line was and assumed that the receivers did nothing more than catch the ball and drop to the ground, gain zero yards after (laughs) catching the football there, His final stat line goes from 13 for 21 for 218 yards to 17 for 21 for 285 yards. That would have been an 81% completion rate and more than 13 and a half yards per attempt. Nate, do you know when the last time was that a Mizzou quarterback completed at least 80% of his passes and had at least 13 yards per attempt, and I put a minimum qualification of like 20 attempts because that's basically you, you were starting in that game. 80% completion percentage and 13 yards per attempt. Which quarterback in Mizzou's last 20 years do you think accomplished that most recently? 
Um, I'm going to say Chase Daniel against Nevada 2000. That is exactly the game in which it happened. Hey! 12 years nice. ago, Chase Daniel against Nevada in 2008. It's the only time any Mizzou quarterback has done that against, uh, or it's, excuse me, no other Mizzou quarterback has done that against a Power 5 opponent. And that is go. what Basilek yeah. would have done if the if the receiver simply caught the passes that were officially marked as drops. He had a really good game, man. I was really impressed. Yeah, uh, he. I was impressed after the Alabama game, and then started pumping my brakes based off of success rate. But he had a good game. If you just need his receivers to help him out, I unofficially, because I'm in no official capacity, have Mizzou at seven drops. Uh, two by Knox, one by Hazelton, Beatty, Chisholm, Hay, and Jacinto. Um, God, 81. Now I'm mad. Now I'm just mad. So that was four we got, for me, and you had three more, right? So those, and all I three, three of them more. would have been on Robinson. So yeah, that's about right. Yeah. Like it, it just, I don't, it, it's not a complicated thing. You're a receiver. You catch the ball. Mm-hmm. You catch the ball. You know, like I, I understand, you know, Maybe Dooley wasn't the best developer of talent on the offensive side of the ball. Uh, obviously, Andy Hill kind of had his receiver uh, title yanked away for special teams and then kind of back. So I understand if some of these receivers have had kind of a mishmash of coaching, but they have a dedicated receivers coach. Um, they have a new offensive staff that should be able to get them to catch the ball or else these guys are just not any good at catching the ball. What? I, I am beyond words as to explain why this receiving court is so bad. Do you have any insight that could possibly fill in the gap of what I cannot explain? Not really, man. I think some of it's concentration. Um, I think some of it is just as simple as Jalen Knox might not be a great catcher of the football. You know, he was a running back in high school. He's converted to the receiver position and he makes more, he makes the catches more often than not, but he misses some of them. And Damon Hazleton, the scouting report on him from what he was at Virginia Tech, is going to drop some passes. He's going to be really frustrating sometimes, but he's also going to make some spectacular catches. And so it, it can be frustrating, but that's what you deal with when you've got a talent like his. And then Kiki Chisholm, I don't know, man. Maybe for him it's as simple as he just hasn't been as involved as he would like to be, and he's trying to make something mm-hmm. happen whenever he's targeted. So I think it's a little bit different for all of these guys. And in the end, it's just kind of this mismatch of it It, it results in you having a bad taste in your mouth anytime they're targeted. Yeah. So that's that's not a great thing. The thing that I – one thing that I came away impressed upon my other watching, and it's not because of Missouri. This is a Tennessee thing. Tennessee's offensive line is so freaking good. So freaking and good. Big and big I, I know I, I put in the BTBS, like, their rivals rankings. They're all four stars. There's – there's uh, Kate Mays is a five star. But they're all top 100 players um, in their – well, I guess their left tackle is a sophomore. But everybody else is pretty old. And – They've been around. They're super talented. They move well together, and they're just huge. Um, Tennessee averaged 5.3 yards per carry, which as a stat is fine. That's pretty telling on its own, Um, but there's a lot more context that you can get out of it. That offensive line was opening up 2.9 yards per rush. So basically, the running backs were running for three yards without even getting Mm. touched. And then on top of that, those running backs, after they'd get four yards, they'd add almost, on average, an extra five. So if you gave them four, they took nine. That's incredible. Their success rate, like the number of rushing plays that got you know five yards on first down 
or 70% of the yards on second down or all the yards on third and fourth, that's a success rate. They had a successful rush 53% of the time. And this isn't 10 rushes. These are 47 times they ran the ball. What's the average and on over- that for, for our listeners who maybe aren't as uh, familiar with the stat? Like on a typical game, what would you expect to see? Sure. So at the end of last year, the national average for success rate was 42%. Wow. They were at 53. 53. And opportunity rate, which is how many times did a run go for four yards? Listener, they got four yards on 48% of their plays. Mm. Again, the average at the end of last year, 46. So I guess that's actually not so bad. (laughs) It's 2% better, though, which is still hard to do. Um, They just gashed us. And yeah, they got you know 17% of their runs stuffed. That's just going to happen when you run the ball 47 times. Um, it, it was just absolutely incredible. I was I was befuddled. I, I, I've I've rarely do you see an offensive line be so effective for so long um, over over the course of a game. And I know I put out the the rival stat uh, rankings for our defensive line, our four starters outside of Trey Williams. They're all two star guys. That's it's not so much an indictment as just like recruiting's playing the odds, right? Like. On, on average, a five-star is going to be a way better player than a two-star. That doesn't mean a two-star can't play at a five-star level, same for a three or a four. It's just you have a better chance of succeeding. And Tennessee and Alabama and Georgia and Florida and LSU, they stock the cabinet with these guys. And, yeah, they're going to miss on a couple. And some of these guys are not going to develop the way they're supposed to. Some might transfer, whatever. But the point is, is you get so many of them that you, you can't lose. You can't miss on some of these. And you can field the best team that you can. And Tennessee's trotting out an SEC offensive line. And frankly, Missouri's trotting out a really good group of five defensive line right now. And that's going to change with the way Drinkwitz can recruit. But right now, that's kind of what they are. Yeah, and it's not just the defensive line, unfortunately. And I mentioned this after the game on Saturday, but the linebacker play next to Nick Bolton was just abysmal. I mean, they were jumping the wrong gap. They were following the wrong lead blocker. They were taking the wrong pursuit angles. It was... It was really bad. I said before the season, one of my keys to the season was going to be somebody taking that spot next to Bolton and running with it and becoming a a quality player next to him. It never really happened last year. It was just kind of you find somebody as they go along after after they lost Kale Garrett, and it feels like it's kind of been that way to start this year. I, I thought there was some stuff to be really excited about Nicholson after the first game, and it just... It, it all went away against Tennessee. I don't know if it was the physicality that Tennessee brought to the table or them just committing to the run in a way that Alabama didn't against Mizzou. I don't know what it was, but they exposed Mizzou's number two linebacker, the guy next to Nick Bolton from start to finish of that game. Yeah. Now, I think Nicholson got injured relatively early in the game. Um, so he missed a couple of series and Wilkins was in and that's when the touchdowns really started pouring in and he came back in. I don't know if he was hundred percent that, I mean, that's not really, it doesn't matter. He didn't play well. Uh, you can come up with reasons why, but they still didn't, uh, which is why there's still an or designation between Wilkins and, uh, and, uh, Nicholson, uh, for this year, for this week. So I think they're just going to try and find a guy to put out there. Uh, you know, Coach Smith, he's got his hands full trying to find a second guy. All you need is a second guy, anybody to step up. <laughs> and they haven't been able to really find that last week, so hopefully we can find it this week. Um, but, yeah, it was a mess. 
And I think one of the biggest things to look at, you know, against Alabama, you go off of success rates, like, hey, per quarter, how, on average, how many of those plays were finding success? When Missouri played Alabama, Alabama's success rate was at 52% in the first quarter. That's when they really just buried us. Went down to 47% in the second, 43 in the third, 31% in the fourth. So kind of teetering off as, as Bryce Young came in and they started slowly rotating out their first string. Against Tennessee, that wasn't the case at all. Tennessee had a 45% success rate in quarter one, 43 in quarter two, 58 in quarter three when they just started running the ball, and then in, insult to injury, a solid 56% of their plays were successful in quarter four. So they just ran the ball, continued to find success running the ball, and just draining the life out of the defense. Um, and that was it. That's all they had to do. I was just very impressed with the very simple game plan they they decided to go to uh, once they realized everything was working and Missouri just couldn't counterpunch and, and get off the field and that was it. Yeah, it it was a rough game and I, I again I wrote about this for the site RockingNation.com. Um, I thought it was super disappointing um, from start to finish. Just I I expected more than a twenty three point loss on the road against Tennessee. I I thought it was going to be closer than that. And it really looked for a little while like it was going to. Again, I go back to that interception mm-hmm. that Connor Bazelik threw at the very end of that game. It was the start of the fourth quarter. Uh, Mizzou was down 28-12 to at the time. And they were driving. They were uh, inside of the Tennessee 30. Again, down 28-12, to trying to make that a one-score game. If you go for two, you get it. You're down 28-20. And he throws mm-hmm. that interception, and from there it was just off to the races for Tennessee. It was game over at that point. So yeah. it felt for a little while like maybe they could make a game out of it, and then it just ended from that huge mistake from Connor Bay's look, and he can't make that throw. But um, as a whole, man, just a just a disappointing performance uh, at Rocky Top for, for the Tigers. Yep. That's okay. These are going to happen. These kind of things are going to happen. Drinkwitz is building a program. Uh, these players are learning <laughs> kind of trial by fire with the SEC. And, you know, when you look at when you look at recruiting classes, I put the, the last five up in the uh, beyond the box score today. Um, you got to go to the oldest ones, like 2016, 2017. Those are the guys that are seeing the field right now because they're the upperclassmen. And wouldn't you know it, that 2016 class was 46th, that 2017 class was 49th, right? Um, these guys, you know, they just, they're not at, ranked as highly as their, as their peers in the SEC. And these are the guys who are uh, the seniors, the upperclassmen. So it's going to be rough. Drinkwitz is going to get his guys in here. Uh, he's building the program up. He's improving recruiting. That's all part of it. It just takes some time. Um, and time is something that everyone's going to get in 2020, I think. Uh, but certainly any building program should give for any brand new coach like Drinkwitz. Just give him a chance to install the culture, install the program, install what he wants to do, and then we'll we'll see how he's doing in a couple of years, right? Absolutely. Um, one more small little kind of putting a bow on the Tennessee game before I know we want to move forward to some of the uh, news from this week and then into what we are going to see against LSU. But I, as I was kind of watching the Bazelook uh, tape, I noticed that almost all of his throws were going outside to the numbers. 
Um, oh, yes. Which, yes. Which is actually the harder throw to make, typically. Like, a lot of the time, you're scared of your th- your quarterback throwing outside of the numbers because he doesn't have the zip on the throw to be able to make it. The corner makes a play, and then suddenly you're going back the other way for six, right? That's that's the fear on those kinds of throws. But Basilic has the arm to be able to make them. He's got some real zip on those throws outside of the numbers. However, he, do- he, he he's, like, afraid to throw inside of the hashes like across the middle of the field it almost never happens for him so so far he has thrown three of his 35 attempts between the hashes sean robinson just for kind of a little (laughs) bit of context here has thrown seven of his 29 attempts inside of the hashes so robinson attacking the middle of the field basilic almost exclusively attacking on the perimeter um that's fine. It's it's not like a huge thing. I think it's going to be okay. And I, I would imagine that eventually he's going to start attacking the middle of the field at least a little bit. Um, but when you're wondering, hey, why isn't Kiki Chisholm more involved? Well, he's probably going to win across the middle, I would think. Um, with drag mm-hmm. routes, with slant routes, stuff that's kind of breaking across the middle to get in front of that corner and win at the point of attack. That's what you would expect him to be able to do really well. And if Basilic, for whatever reason, is uncomfortable making those throws, that could at least be partially why we are seeing less involvement from Chisholm thus far, at least certainly mm-hmm. this week, um, it would explain it. And it's also something worth noting for Jalen Knox's involvement as well. We've seen a lot of him going behind the line of scrimmage and then kind of floating out into the flats. I kind of figured at some point we would also see a little bit of him doing crossers across the middle just from his slot position. Yeah. Uh, if this is the way that Basilic is going to attack the field, I wouldn't expect to see a ton of that unless he's waiting for Knox to open up on the other side. And that just takes longer to develop. And against teams like, you know, Tennessee or LSU, it could potentially result in more sacks and more extended plays where he's got to scramble. And that's just not going to be his strength. So it's something worth monitoring. I found it to be a little surprising uh, for a guy like him, but um, not not a huge concern, but certainly something worth watching moving forward. And here's the other thing, not to not to criticize your observational skills, PK. I think they're quite good. But if you can see that, you know, just kind of scrolling through tape really quick, you can bet your ass that an army of GAs have found that out very quickly Absolutely. who work for LSU and are going, um, <clears throat> look at this, <laughs> play zone on the outside, double the outside guys and let the inside guys beat us. Like, it doesn't take a genius to figure that You're out. You're also going to see corners um, jumping routes. Like, he's throwing the comebacks, that, he's throwing yeah. the corners. They are not going to fall mm-hmm. for those double moves coming across the middle as much until he shows them that he's willing to throw it across the middle. Yeah, so he's going to have to learn, and that's okay. It's great to use this year of learning things because it really doesn't matter. Um. But back to the things that do matter. BK, I am I am brokenhearted. Um, my cousin Montre, Montre Edwards, the second Montre Edwards, he put himself in the transfer portal. Uh, just as a reminder, he is a defensive tackle. He was a three-star, uh, 5.7, so the highest three-star you can get out of Lexington, Mississippi in Holmes County High School. Uh, yeah, just... Decided not to do this anymore. He's in the transfer portal. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean he's going to leave. Guys in the transfer portal do come back. That is a thing. But if you remember his recruiting story, he committed to Odom. Odom gets fired. He decommits. And then, if I remember correctly, he committed like back in January. Um, So he was already kind of on the fence. 
And he comes into a defensive tackle room that has, you know, one, two, three, four seniors in front of him, plus Isaiah McGuire, Binkey, and Darius Robinson, who have already in, been in the program. Um, and he's kind of the odd man out. Now, I think, if I remember correctly, we all kind of pinned Montre Edwards as a guy who could see some possible playing time as a heavier defensive end on the outside. Um, and so far, we've not seen that, so he's going bye-bye. Are you uh, sad, upset, and you know, wish him well? What are your thoughts on this? Yeah, I mean, it's disappointing, right? Because this is a guy that, as I watched his tape coming out of high school, I thought he could potentially be a pretty early contributor, especially as kind of a uh, run-stuffing nose tackle. And with Mizzou going to this new scheme, if you will, where they've got even more defensive tackles on the field more often... It requires guys like that that can stuff the run in two-gap, which means that you're basically taking responsibilities on both sides of the center, and you you are holding your man there, you have responsibilities on both sides of the gap, and then you are able to shed that block and go make the tackle wherever the running back is going if he comes within your gap. Uh, I thought he could do that. He, he has the type of skills to be able to play that role, uh, we haven't seen that so far this year, obviously, based on the fact that he hasn't gotten onto the field and is not on the too deep. I, I made that observation right out of camp. It, I was a little surprised, honestly, mm-hmm. that he wasn't on the too deep. Um, and this this is something worth noting because I, I thought he was, if not a contributor this year, going to be a contributor moving forward. Um, Mizzou, as of right now, does not have a defensive tackle um, as being committed for this upcoming class, as far as I can tell. Um, So it's certainly noteworthy, and maybe it adds on another need into this recruiting class where you probably are going to want a run-stuffing defensive tackle to be committed by the end of the class. Uh, So it's definitely something worth monitoring, man. I'm disappointed by this. What was your reaction? I'm just surprised at the timing. Like, what, what does this get for you by transferring now? You no longer are practicing with the team. You no longer are working out. Um, in a season that doesn't count anyway. No team's going to take you now. You could, you know, sit it through, see what happens. COVID obviously can claim a lot of starters here and there. Not that we want that too, but this is a year where nothing counts and you can be called on at literally any point. So I don't know why it's now. I don't think it's for playing reasons. Maybe it's for COVID reasons. Maybe it's there's a personal issue going on and he wants to get closer to home. Uh, maybe, you know, he was talking to the rest of the de- defensive tackles and they're all like, yeah, man, I'm coming back next year. And he's like, gosh, really? <laughs> like, how much longer is it going to take for me to break through here? Like, maybe that's the case. I don't know. It's, it's impossible to tell. But I think disappointment is the key feeling here. I thought he was going to be able to contribute just like you said. Um, now, if you go back to his recruiting, Arizona State, Auburn, and Florida State were really, really, really high on him, uh, as was Ole Miss and um, LSU as well. So if they're still interested, he's got some lofty places to land. It's just curious that you know October 6th in a season that doesn't count is when he decided to do that. Yeah. I, was there some talk of Mississippi State for him at one point, too? Am I misremembering I believe that? so, yeah. Um, so- one of, certainly – He's from Mississippi, so I'd have to guess that both Mississippi schools might have shown some interest. Yeah, and they've both certainly changed um, coaching staff since then, so who knows where they would be in terms of their um, interest level in him now. But it it is, yeah, it's it's surprising in terms of the timing. It makes me wonder, and and I don't know, this is 100% speculation, right? But I I wonder if there's maybe something more to it. 
than just the football side of things? Like, why why would sure. you leave now? Why would you leave the football program now as opposed to waiting it out? It's not like it's a long season necessarily. You've basically got another, <laughs> what, eight weeks, ten weeks? Go another two, two and a half months at Mizzou, and then you can go wherever afterwards. I don't know. It, it's a little surprising in terms of the timing. I am surprised that he decided to leave. Uh, and it, it certainly opens up a potential hole on the defensive line that is in need of a large man to fill. And he was going to be potentially one of those large men that could fill that role. Yeah. I mean, at this point, so the defensive end, we got Shamar, Shamar Pearl and Daniel Robledo. Robledo is a Juco defensive end, but he's a big dude, kind of like Ben Key. They're teammates, so he might bounce to defensive tackle. But, yeah, I don't know. As far as recruiting goes, like – what if Byers comes back? I think Daniels might be coming back. Uh, crap, on the way they're playing, Utsi and Whiteside might be coming back for another year to show what they got. Like, who knows? Um, so maybe it is an issue, maybe it's not, but um, you kind of have to recruit like these guys aren't going to be here. And if that's the case, then you only really have four upperclassmen and then Mikai Wingo coming in, and that's it. So, uh, yeah, it could be a new avenue of recruiting. We'll see what happens, but um, – Sucks. Hope the hope the kid does well. I hope this is for you know he really thought through his his options here and he's making the right choice for him. I'm all about that. Um, and we will move on with the guys who are still on the team. So, uh, any other thoughts before we officially kick this stupid present called Tennessee football out the door? Uh, one more thing. I was reading your Beyond the Box score earlier today, and I mm-hmm. thought you made a great point on Mizzou not capitalizing on their opportunities whenever they had scoring uh. opportunities. Uh, I think you should definitely yeah. kind of bring that up for our audience who maybe haven't read your piece, and they absolutely should go over to Rock M Nation and read your Beyond the Box score piece. But if they haven't yet, tell them a little bit about how uh, the final score may be not quite as indicative of how Mizzou played and why that is. So... A lot of things go into scoring the ball, and there's a lot of ways you can look at it. But one of the best things you can do is look at your scoring opportunities. And that's typically what you look at as a scoring opportunity is when a team crosses the opponent's 40-yard line. I know a lot of us were brought up on you know old-school announcers in the red zone, the 20-yard line. There's nothing magic about the red zone. If you, are, if you cross the opponent's 40, you are in a scoring opportunity. And if you look at it in those terms, you can see that teams actually create a lot of opportunities for themselves, a lot more than what you might think. So, looking at Missouri-Tennessee, the score was 35-12. to 12. If you look at scoring just from kind of a typical, you know, standard look at it, you're like, oh, well, how many times did they get in the red zone? Oh, not that often. Okay, so Tennessee must have just kept scoring, kept scoring, kept scoring, and Missouri just couldn't cross the 50, you know, something kind of like that. It's a little bit more nuanced than that. Um Tennessee had six scoring opportunities. Again, a scoring opportunity is if you cross the opponent's 40 or you just, you know, you score from somewhere, right? That's a scoring opportunity. In those cases, Tennessee had six scoring opportunities. Missouri had five. Missouri had five scoring opportunities. Tennessee, six. That's actually showing that Missouri was putting themselves in a position where they could close the gap pretty frequently, okay? Where's the difference then? Where is this 23-point difference? Well, it comes into the points per opportunity. Tennessee had six scoring opportunities, scored on five of them, scored touchdowns every single time. That's 35 points. Missouri had five scoring opportunities, 12 points. That's 2.4 points per opportunity. It's less than a field goal for every time you cross the 40. 
that's not going to cut it. Okay, that's where you get that 23 point gap. So there is a, you know, there's an interception. There is a uh, ran out of downs towards the end of the of the game. So, you know, that's going to affect it. Um, and obviously, Harrison Mevis are thicker can make it from 65,000 yards away. So that's not the issue. But you need to score t- touchdowns. And not only did Tennessee kind of control possessions and, and control, you know, plays per possession. So they just had a lot of control of the ball, but they capitalized on their opportunities. And so if you look at purely scoring opportunities, you might think this was a close game, even if Tennessee out, outgained us by, you know, what, 90 yards. But it wasn't because Missouri couldn't finish drives and couldn't score more points when they had the opportunity. Mizzou kicked a field goal from the Tennessee 10-yard line. They threw an interception from the Tennessee 27-yard line. And then, as you said, ran out of downs on the Tennessee 33. Boom, there's your game. It really is that simple. Um, Sometimes you can go into a game and it felt leaving that one man like Mizzou was completely overmatched. Like that was just in the moment as you're kind of watching the game. It's like, man, Tennessee is just kind of whooping them. And in some (laughs) ways they did, right? You just went through how their offensive line absolutely dominated the game for the Vols. That being said, Mizzou also shot themselves in the foot so many times that it could have been a lot closer than it ultimately was. That should have probably Mm -hmm. been uh, maybe a one-score-ish game down the stretch that Mizzou made interesting and probably fell a little bit short. And if that was the case, I think we're talking completely differently today. Sure. Basically playing the same way, just having a couple of different results on those drives. If Bayslook, instead of throwing that interception, throws it away there and they score, let's say they even score a field goal on that drive. Well, now you're adding a field goal there. Maybe instead of the drive stalling at the 10-yard line early in the second quarter, maybe now they they score a touchdown. Well, you add four points there, so that's already adding another seven, so you're up to 19. Like Suddenly, you're feeling a little better about the way that that game ended with them going out on downs at the end of the game to potentially make it a one-score game. Boom. Okay, now we're talking about this completely differently. But you got to be able to finish whenever you get into the red zone and whenever you specifically have a scoring opportunity, like you mentioned. You got to be able to get those scoring chances and and convert them into scores. Yeah. Third down conversions and capitalizing on your scoring opportunities. That's the best way for overmatched underdog to hang with the big boys and scoring opportunities were about the same points per opportunity third down conversions six for 15 for missouri now tennessee was six for 13 so a little bit better but they are also um four for four on fourth down so that's another way to keep the offense on the field and, and wear out the defense so it's little things, man. It's always little things. And you, if you can do the little things, you're not going to win all the time, but you can at least keep it close, put yourself in a position. And so far, this team hasn't been able to do that. And here we are, 0-2. On the plus side, what they get next is LSU. <laughs> hey, thank God, right? Here's a chance to prove ourselves against um, <clears throat> the defending national champions. Um but, you know, it, there is a little bit more to LSU than that. And uh, to help me go through that, uh, I was lucky enough to have Poser from And the Valley Shook join us uh, for an interview earlier this uh, this evening. So let's go ahead and go to that. And tonight we are joined by Poser uh, from And the Valley Shook, uh, SB Nation's LSU blog. Uh, Poser's been around for a long time. He knows LSU football very well. Uh, and I got to think that he's doing pretty well so far. How are you doing tonight, sir? I'm doing pretty well. I mean, I would have liked to have beat Mississippi State, so let's not oversell how, how well I'm doing with LSU this year. But 
national yeah. title makes it go down easy. See, so. that's that's my thing. Like you all came out well from a national standpoint. You all came out of nowhere with this automatic high flying offense that's super accurate. Joe Burrow wasn't, and then he was making all the passes. Uh, Joe Brady's calling the best plays. Uh, your defense wakes up about halfway through the season, just becomes an, un, an unbeatable juggernaut. You win the Natty. You lose thirty six guys. Does this season with COVID in the national title, does it even matter to you at all? Or is this just like, Hey, everything's fine. I don't want to say it doesn't matter because you play to win and all that kind of stuff, but no, it doesn't matter. Like this is as much of a season can be a mulligan. This season's a mulligan. Uh, I think I saw a stat that in our first game against Mississippi state, LSU had more players on the roster who were playing in FCS last year than had started in the national Ooh. championship game. Jeez. And this year, it's a weird year anyway. Yeah, mm-hmm. we won the national title. This is the this is the rebuilding year. So mm-hmm. whatever happens, happens. Obviously, it's better to win than lose. So you'll never find an LSU fan who's like, hey, yeah, it's cool that we lost. <laughs> but on the flip side, no one's going to be mad about anything that happens this year. Yeah. Well, you you mentioned it. You know, you open up the season losing to Mississippi State. They kind of bushwhack you guys, and then you turn around and get to feast on maybe one of the worst football teams in the country. Um, so you're sitting at one and one. You're averaging about thirty seven points a game. What's the current temperature like? Are you guys you know feeling okay? You think the Mississippi State was just a was just a weird thing, or what's the what's the feeling on your team? I think we're feeling better. It's still a hard team to get a hold on just because there's so many new faces. Mm-hmm. I, I would say the big thing, what really caused the Mississippi state game, not so much was all the players leaving, but the fact we had two new coordinators. If you remember, mm-hmm. we're also breaking in a new OC and a new DC and Bo Pelini. I think we lost the Mississippi state game due to arrogance where there's a book on how to beat Mike Leach. You, you know, you rush the passer, you play, you put everybody into a zone coverage, you make them dink and dunk down the field and no one's going to complete the pass 70% of the time. Mm -hmm. And instead he's like, by God, LSU runs the man coverage defense. So that's what we're going to do. We're going to cover man and Mississippi state set an sec record for passing. And the (laughs) fact that he didn't change the defense at halftime now, his excuse was Derek Stingley wasn't playing. Sure. Um, he, there was a lot of injured guys. Everyone's playing out of position. I get that. But to continue to play man defense against a Mike Leach air raid offense, it's not just dumb. It's just arrogant. It's <laughs> it's basically saying we have the talent to not play the correct defense and still beat you. And and let's be honest, unless you're Bama, no one's that good. Right. Yeah, I just... So Missouri fans are intimately familiar with Bo Pelini and his time as the sure head coach. Uh, there's no love lost between those two. Uh, you guys are familiar with him because he used to be your DC way back, yeah. way, way, way back in the day. Um, other than his arrogant and poor performance against Mississippi State, I mean, are you guys cool with the hire? Is it still kind of up in the air? What do you think? That's a meh is the best way to say it. I didn't hate the hire. I didn't like it. I would have mm-hmm. preferred – to if there was if they were going to make an underwhelming hire, I would have preferred them to promote Corey Raymond to the uh, DC job from the secondary position. Gotcha. Um, I would have rather they hired someone who was kind of a young up and comer. And I know there's the thing. Well, LSU kind of has had 
a history of our coordinators getting stolen to become head coaches of mm-hmm. other programs. And I consider that one of those good kind of problems. Mm-hmm. I mean, you, you kind of want your coordinators to be so good that other people want to make them head coaches. So Bo Pelini felt really like it was a settling kind of hire. Um, the one thing I do like about it is as much as I like Dave Aranda, he did run the three, four defense. And I think LSU is just built better to play a four, three. Mm-hmm. So I do like the change in style that he brought, but I don't, I, once again, I don't hate the Bo Pelini hire, but I'm not, I don't think anyone was doing backflips over it. <laughs> it's just kind of, you know, it's a solid B minus. Okay. Okay. Well, hopefully yeah. after, you know, after a state, it feels like a D. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So, so Bo Pelini is brand new and I know you all lost Joe Brady, the wonder kid. You replaced uh, as a passing game coordinator, Scott, Linehan, which to yeah. me was the most vanilla hire you yeah. could get after Rocky Road. So how's he doing? He's doing okay. Again, Ensminger, you know, still the offensive coordinator, and he's sure. the guy who calls the plays, and he knows the offense so he can run it. I would say if we take a step back, Ed Orgeron won the national title, and he kind of was able to put it in everybody's faces because <laughs> – yeah. You know, this was not the most popular hire. A lot of people made fun of him around the country and he goes out and wins a national title. He could write his own ticket at that point. He could, he had a blank check. He could do whatever he wanted. And the two names he hires are Scott Linehan and Bo Pelini. Mm-hmm. That's when you have a blank check and those are the two names you come back with that that's pretty underwhelming. I think philosophically is what that makes me worry the most is it? It just felt like Orgeron had gotten so much mileage out of taking risk, and suddenly, after winning the national title, it it felt like he took a breath, like he just mm-hmm. took a big sigh. It's like, ah, oh, we've made the mountaintop, and you can never do that in the SEC. Mm-hmm. So, did he just get lucky with with Brady, and now he doesn't? You know, he's trying to roll the dice again and, and rolled wrong, or is it truly he just? He's okay. I don't care anymore. I I can coast off this for a couple of years. No, I don't want to say he doesn't care anymore. And he certainly didn't get lucky. Let's let's be honest. He identified that talent. Like the Brady hire was a great hire, mm-hmm. but also he was kind of unleashing the offense anyway. I mean, he did it under Ensminger when he was the interim head coach. He mm-hmm. then he promised, "Hey, I'm going to get a great offense coordinator." I think he misfired on Canada, but he identified that problem right away and you knew Canada was on his way out after about game five or game six of his tenure. Yeah. You, if anything, you have to give him credit that he saw the problem, he identified it and he fixed it. So he doesn't get points for luck. He, he, he saw what was going on. And he did it. And I don't think he's like going to coast for the next couple of years, but I do think there was like, I don't want to say a month or two where he just, you know, wasn't, you know, he didn't care anymore because he certainly cares. One thing Ed O does is he cares. Mm -hmm. But I think if you look at when he's had, when he's had his back to the wall, he's gone to comfort. You know, he hired Jenkins, who is, you know, just a defensive line coach who's been around for, you know, 20, 30 years. Mm -hmm. He's he's hired a lot of veteran staff because that's what makes him comfortable. He's sort of hired his friends Mm -hmm. and it's worked for him so far, but I don't know how long that can work. That's fair. That's fair. Um, speaking of things working, you've you've transitioned from the Joe Burrow era to Miles Brennan, who has like forever been the next quarterback in line. Uh, how is the Brennan experience going for you guys? Um, 
I want to root for Miles Brennan so hard because almost any other quarterback would have transferred by now. Yeah. Now you look around the country, guys don't stick around like he did. He has stuck around for three years and he has lost two quarterback races because people remember Burrow, but remember he also lost his job out to Danny Etling. <laughs> That's so right. this is a guy who has waited his turn and I so badly want him to be successful. Uh, game one, he didn't look good. Yeah. Uh, he, it was probably the least impressive 300 yard passing performance in history. <laughs> um, what really didn't look good was just that he just didn't look comfortable in the pocket. He was holding the ball too long, just making bad reads. Now Vanderbilt, he looked great. Sure. He was outstanding. <laughs> yeah. um, now the question is, there's the old saw, your biggest improvement is from game one to game two. So did he improve a ton or did he just play Vanderbilt? <laughs> that's a good question. Yeah. And we don't know. Yeah. And, and that's, I, I think, I don't want to say we're going to learn it against Missouri, but we will start learning. You know, the other thing is that, you know, Joe was completing what? 70% of his passes, I think last year. And now Burroughs at, or sorry, gosh, slip there. Brennan is at uh 60.2% over two games. Is that just a um, lack of familiarity with the new receivers or receivers dropping balls or routes are bad or what's the secret behind that? There's been some drops, but I'll be happy with 60%. Let's, let's be honest. Joe Burrow was a once in a generation quarterback and I am not going to hold Brennan to the Burrow standard. Good. Um, Burrow, not only did he throw 70%, but those were 70% on balls downfield. <laughs> yeah. Like normally when you see a guy with a 70%, that kind of level of completions, he's dinking and dunking you. Mm-hmm. Burrow was throwing it like 20, 30 yards down the field every time. It, it, what Burrow did was amazing. And I think with Brennan, if we say, hey, he completes 60% of his passes, he's averaging about eight yards per attempt. That's really good. It's not a Heisman winner, but that's good. And we just have to adjust our expectations. I don't want to say adjust our expectations down. That's what your expectation should be, period. It's just that Burrow was special. Yeah. And we need to appreciate. And I think everyone in Baton Rouge understands that that was a special player. And we're never going to see the likes of Joe Burrow again. Yeah. You know, obviously you lose uh, Clyde Edwards Hilaire, who's now a Kansas City Chief. And that hurts. Replacing him, uh, I really liked Tyrion Davis Price. But John Emery Jr. had a had a pretty good game last last week. Is this just another kind of running back by committee, or is there someone trying to separate themselves from the pack? There's also Chris Curry in that backfield. He's mm. you know got the legendary 18. So oh, there's nice. three guys who went in there kind of as a running back committee. But to be honest, I think Emery is the best of the three. He's mm-hmm. the first among equals. He is the former five star recruit. He's got the most talent of the three. I think he's going to start separating himself as the season goes on. You still will see a lot of Tyrion Davis-Price. You'll see a lot of Curry. Uh, It's not just going to be one guy, but I think Emory's going to get over half the carries against Missouri. Nice. Now, looking at this LSU defense, when I think LSU, I always think defense. The, the, The offensive revolution from last year was just out of nowhere for, I think, most everybody. It was always about defense, defense, defense. And you guys had a solid one in the first half of the season, a dominant one in the back half. Again, you lose most of everybody. But Derek Steely Jr. is still there. Uh, Cordell Flott. Um, you got some names. How do you feel? Are they taken to the 4-3 okay? Do you see a little bit of a glimmer from last year? Or is everyone still trying to get used to each other? I do think everybody's trying to get used to each other. Um, 
I will say I've been really impressed with the defensive line so far. Mm-hmm. Um, Ali Gay has been a revelation. Uh, I could say that word. Um, <laughs> Ali Gay has been our, probably our best player on the line. He's been outstanding. Um, and Andre Anthony, he's, he's a good pass rusher. I mean, he, he's credible, but he's not, he's not going to be all SEC. He's not going to wow you, but he, he keeps teams on, you know, he has been keeping teams honest basically. Um, I think the addition of Jabril Cox has made a huge difference because linebacker could have been a massive hole in this team, mm-hmm. considering what we lost from last year and bringing in the transfer from North Dakota state. He's a playmaker. He's a legit first rounder. He makes a big difference on this team. And of course we still have Jacoby Stevens who, yeah. you know, is heart and soul of the defense. I mean, I love Jacoby Stevens to death. I don't know whether to call him a linebacker or a safety He's just kind of one of those Swiss Army knife guys that LSU kind of specializes in. Mm-hmm. And, but once again, I think what was so shocking about the state game is LSU has made its bones for years as, you know, DBU. This is a, a program that has great cornerbacks, and we have great cornerbacks this year. You know, you have, um, you know, Ricks, but also Derek Stingley, I think, is the best corner in the country and might be. He could establish himself as the greatest corner in LSU history. That's how good Derek Stingley Jeez, is. Yeah. And he didn't play the state game. And you could tell. Mm-hmm. His absence was I don't I, I don't want to go out and say, well, we didn't have Stingley, so we lost, and that doesn't count. The game counts. So don't make this sound like I'm trying to make an excuse. <laughs> sure. That said, Derek Stingley is a difference maker. He is Patrick Peterson. He's Taran Matthew. He's Trey White. Derek Stingley wow. is an amazing football player. And you saw it even in the Vandy game, we put him in the punt return game. He had a hundred yards in, in punt return yardage. Mm-hmm. You know, he, he can lock down your top receiver. He's just a great, great player. If you have to worry about one player in LSU, that's the guy. Derek Stingley is our best player. So obviously he is a name. He is a known name. And I'm sure Drinkwitz and his friends are, are thinking of ways to scheme around him. But of the newcomers on defense, is Jabril, Jabril Cox the best of the newcomers? Yeah, it's either Cox or Ali Gay. Uh, it's, those are the, the guys who are neck and neck. Cox is the guy we expected to be really good, but I really did not expect Ali Gay to be, make this much of an impact right mm-hmm. off the bat. And so sometimes you tend to be, well, since I didn't expect it, he's been the better one. So I'm actually going to throw it to Gay just because – I wasn't expecting really anything out of him, and he's been such an impact so far. He's made three tackles for a loss. He, he's been all over the place. Six six two sixty two. Good God, that is yeah, a he, he's large good. man. <laughs> um, so I guess this game is actually going to be played in Columbia because Hurricane uh, Delta is supposed to hit. Yeah, we've uh, run out of names. We've 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 cycled into the Greek alphabet. That's always a good sign, right? <laughs> yeah, it's been an awful year. 2020, man. Just, just mm, mm. The less said the uh, better. <laughs> yeah, they haven't officially announced it yet. I'm sure by the time this gets released, they will have made an official announcement. I know LSU's been trying to angle to maybe get the game in Dallas instead, but mm-hmm. I think when it's all said and done, it'll be played in Missouri. And also what I like is that they were talking about it on Tuesday. They said they're going to make a decision Wednesday morning. It just takes it off the table. So mm-hmm. that way the state can focus on things that matter. Mm-hmm. Um, hurricanes are serious. And everyone in Louisiana knows that. And you don't want to be worried about the logistics of a football game when something like that's when a Category 4 hurricane is bearing down on the state. So played in Missouri. 
I mean, there's not going to be any fans anyway. Doesn't yeah. matter. Yeah. Just play the game. Keep everybody safe. Yeah. Right. Uh, right before COVID hit, uh, the wife and I went to New Orleans, and we got uh, we went to uh, see all of the, the was the Fifth Ward when that get hit by Katrina. Uh, the amount of water there was uh, staggering. How 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 that gets? And that was a Category Four too. I think by the time it hit, so uh, it is a devastating thing. And you all are are unfortunately placed to get the brunt of most of that. So I do think it's a good idea to at least take that off the table. I don't think it changes a damn thing. I think you guys are still going to win the game, but uh, you know, it's, it's different. Were you guys, you guys were in Starkville, right? Is that where you all played that game? Yeah, we played in Starkville. We've actually never played in Columbia. So yeah. I'm, I'm kind of upset. This is how it's finally going to happen. Um, I have my own long takes on why I don't like sec scheduling, <laughs> uh, but this is the thing I don't like about it. We don't feel like we're in the same conference I know, and we should play more often. Um, the SEC needs to go to nine games just so you can play every team more often and we, we would feel more like conference mates. So, yeah, there's no real hate here because we don't no. play. No. So it's kind of like, yeah, cool, we're going to play Missouri, whatever. We have to play there? All right, they'll be good hosts. You know, there's <laughs> not that. I think if you think of back a couple of years ago, the LSU-Florida thing, oh, there God. was just so much yeah. animosity that was already baked in. Mm. It just led to bad decisions being made. Because for some reason, the rivalry extended off the field. And that shouldn't have happened. Yeah. And I don't think that's happening with this. Because there is no rivalry on the field. So it doesn't make the relationship toxic. I agree. Yeah. I, you know, it is a shame that you all have never been to Columbia. We've rarely hosted uh, defending national champions. It would have been a great game to have in, in normal times. But these are not normal times. Um, right now I'm looking, you guys are whew, 20 and a half point favorites. Um, that's a, that's a pretty big spread. That seems low to me. <laughs> what do you, what do you think is going to be the outcome? Does Missouri cover? How's this go? Um, LSU is a hard team to get a read on right now. Um, I don't think, I think the state game was kind of an outlier. I think LSU lost again. I think it was because of arrogance more than anything mm. else. And, I don't think Missouri runs that kind of offense, so you're not going to be able to exploit Bo Pelini being stupid. Um, on the flip side, you're a better team than Vanderbilt, so I don't think we're just going to – and <laughs> if you look at the Vanderbilt game, that game, it it was 21-7 to with a minute left in the first half, mm -hmm. and Vanderbilt was inside the five-yard line. They scored a touchdown there. It's a totally different second half, and – I think that's more the kind of game I'm expecting. I think LSU wins comfortably, but not it's not put away until the fourth quarter kind of thing. Like it's a one or two score game at the end, but LSU is always in control. So I, I think LSU wins by like 14, but I, between 10 and 14 points, but it's not like a backdoor cover. I, I yeah. think it's, yeah. I, I think it's consistently Missouri's in the football game and LSU is just trying to hold y'all off. I'll tell you what, I'll take that. <laughs> we, we played Alabama, we played Tennessee, and uh, I would like a, a competitive game going into the second half. So, um, yeah, hey, you heard it here. Bet the under, and uh, Missouri heroically covers. That sounds like a pretty good game. Yeah, heroically covers. That's a <laughs> never a good sign if you guys are talking that way. <laughs> hey, man, we're, we're a young, bad team with a brand-new coaching staff. We're going to take our wins where we can get them. So, uh, score prediction, the exact score prediction, do you got one? Um, we've got a good kicking game. I'll call it 34 to 21. 
Mm. Uh, we'll, sc- we'll, score, we'll score points, but we'll allow some points. Um, you can run on us. I'm, I'm not sold on our run defense. Mm-hmm. And as much as I love Stingley, there's still the rest of the secondary, which is still a question mark. So <laughs> you'll be able to – and the secondary is young, so they'll make a stupid coverage yeah. error yeah. at one point, and you'll gain – like you'll have a 70-yard pass completion. Well, if we could hold on to our balls, uh, we would have a couple 70-yard completions already. But we'll see. We'll see how it goes. Uh, but yeah, you heard it here for first, folks. We'll have a LSU win, but a Mizzou cover, so that's always nice. Poser, sir, thank you for all of your insight on LSU football. Well, thank you for having me. My thanks again to Poser and uh, the folks at And the Valley Shook. Uh, good dudes. If you want to learn anything about LSU, check them out. They've been around for a long time, know a lot about LSU football. Um, so. As he and I talked about in the interview and as we have referenced um, earlier this evening, it kind of gets the feeling that this game is going to be played in Columbia, which is great for Missouri fans if they want to go see uh, LSU in person. Um, and it's great for us because the game is going to be at 11, so it'll be over by 2.30 and we don't have to stay up till midnight to do anything. Um, other than those nice little perks uh, for Mizzou folks, does that change how this game gets played in any facet to you? No, it's it's not as bad as Alabama. Um, I don't have the same optimism that I did against Tennessee. It, it's somewhere in between. Um, probably closer to Alabama than the optimism that I felt against Tennessee. Sure. Vegas has Mizzou as a 20-point underdog in this one. I don't know if that has been adjusted yet for the home field, but let's be honest, the home field doesn't mean what it once did. It doesn't. Um, it doesn't. And so, I I mean, I go into this kind of hoping to see some bright spots the same way that I did against Alabama. Um, and specifically, they named Connor Bazelik the starting quarterback earlier today. I want to yeah. see him play well. Like, it doesn't have to be perfect, and there there will almost certainly be moments where it looks a little ugly, but let's see what he's got in this one. I, I want to see him take advantage of some of his opportunities. Let's see a couple more of those flash plays like we did whenever he threw the unbelievable pass to Logan Christofferson in the, in the game against Tennessee. Yeah. Give me a couple of those splash plays, hit a couple of third and fives where – Maybe your receiver drops it the way that they did seemingly every time against Tennessee, but you hit him in the hands. That's all you can ask for from the quarterback. That's all I want. I want to see some more flashes from the quarterback. Let's see Kiki Chisholm get a little bit more involved against a quality opponent, and hopefully the defensive line and the linebackers look a little better against the run. If I can get all of that, man, that's that's more signs of optimism moving forward against a quality team that you, you frankly don't expect to beat this weekend. LSU is not last year's LSU. Uh, I said in the preview that they're missing 36 guys uh, from that from that championship team. Um, they've got more starters on from the FCS than they do from the championship game from last year. Uh, brand new quarterback, brand new running back, brand new receiving core, almost completely brand new offensive line, um, and a completely retooled defense. Let alone new guys on the defensive side as well. Like. This is a totally different team, other than the fact that Ed Orgeron is the head man. Uh, you got a couple guys that's that were bit players, but that's about it. Now, now don't get me wrong; they still recruit at an elite level. Okay, so all of these guys are very, very good. Um, and the scheme from last year, offensive scheme from last year, is still there. Bo Pelini is a hell of a DC. Uh, no matter what you think of him as a person, which 
probably not very high uh, for most of us old Mizzou folks. Um, but it's it's going to be a tough test regardless. Now, Mississippi State showed that you can beat them if Bo Pliny insists on playing man <laughs> against the air raid. Uh, and Vanderbilt showed that if you're a bad team, you get your butt kicked. So there's really not a whole lot you can learn from those previous two games. Really, it's kind of like you said, show me proof of concept, show some movement of the ball, show some improvement from the Tennessee game, uh, and hope that somebody flashes and, God, can we at least keep it close? That's what I'd really like. You're looking for, and I mean, I, I don't know how much you can learn from that Vandy game, right? That's just, Vandy's not good, and we knew Vandy wasn't good. They're not, they have a terrible offense, and that's the biggest thing I think you could take away from that game. If you look at what, uh, Ken Seals, the quarterback, freshman quarterback yeah. for Vandy, did against Texas A&M. It was awful. Twenty for twenty-nine, a buck fifty through the air, a touchdown, two interceptions, and he followed oh it God. up last week with basically the exact same thing: eleven for twenty-five for hundred and thirteen yards, touchdown, two picks. He's on, averaging <laughs> fewer than five yards per attempt. They How might as well just run the ball. Passes. How do you throw twenty passes? That are completed, not even the ones just thrown. <laughs> 20 completed passes for 150 yards? I, My I goodness. Haven't, I haven't looked, but I would imagine every pass was behind the line. Like, at a it certain point, be. I'm guessing they were just like, let's just dump this thing off and see if we can run the clock off. They, they ended up losing that game 17-12. to 12. So the defense played well against Texas A&M, and then yeah. it just was a nightmare against LSU. This is going to be a game that if Mizzou was in it, the offense is going to have to get involved. It's the only way they're going to be able to keep this one close because LSU is going to score. We all made fun of them for their defense against Mississippi State, but let's not forget LSU also put up 34 points on their own. Last week against Vandy, who say what you will about their offense, they typically have a pretty decent defense and they kept Texas A&M down pretty well. They put up 41 against that Vandy defense. So if Mizzou's going to keep this close, the offense has to be better than what we've seen in the first two weeks. It has to. Um, you know, the thing about the the LSU defense is that they're not really as disruptive as they were last year. Um, you know, they don't really stuff the run super well, only 11% right now. For context, again, Missouri was able to stuff Tennessee at 17%. Um, and for Alabama, what were, what were they at? No, no. Oh, ugh. Technology sucks. Okay, so they were able to stuff Alabama at a 10% rate. Um, so it's they're nothing special, right? That's pretty much about as average as you can get, which you don't expect from an LSU defensive line, right? They recruit swamp monsters. They're really talented. They should be better than that. Currently, they're not. The other thing that this defense is really, really struggling with um, is explosive plays which Larry was able to show last week <laughs> when he he when he wasn't getting stuffed behind the line he was running for 23 17 28 yards so that's that's an opportunity there um, and even with Derek Stanley uh, that pass defense is pretty prone to big explosive plays so Connor sir if you like to work on your deep ball <laughs> and maybe your deep ball in between the hashes this is a pretty good team to practice that, I guess. Hey, Connor was pretty good on the deep ball last week, man. Let's talk to Dominic Jacinto. <laughs> when, you, when you get the yeah. deep ball, uh, kind sir, and he's been good so far at coming open on some of these routes. 
just got to come down with it, my man. And uh, he's got every opportunity to do so against this team. I, I think Drinkwitz has done a pretty good job of designing guys to being able to get open. It's a matter of what they do once they are open. That's been a little bit problematic yeah. at times. Um, yeah. He's going to have to, Drinkwitz is going to have to do a hell of a job in this game because Mizzou is at a talent disadvantage. We saw it against Tennessee. It's going to be the case once again against LSU, probably to an even greater extent. Um, maybe not with as much experience on the LSU defensive side of things, but talent-wise, all the same. So it's going to be a big week for Drinkwitz. He's going to have to show some things that he hasn't shown thus far and build off of things that he has shown already. Uh, and another big week coming up for the quarterbacks, and more specifically, Connor Bazelik. This is his opportunity, man. He earned it. He ripped the job away from Sean Robinson last week. He earned the the starting label, and now mm-hmm. he has to earn it to keep it. Yeah. Well, the the other thing that that you mentioned the linebackers making plays like, oh, seriously, <laughs> seriously, uh, the, you know this LSU offense, they're not super explosive. They like the efficiency plays. Um, so, are they ripping off big runs? No. Are they ripping off big passes? Eh, kind of. Not too bad though. Um, but the point is, is that if we are seeing LSU running backs go for twenty yards like Tennessee backs did. Um, that's just further indictment on our linebackers. In fact, in my Tennessee preview, I didn't even consider the running game because they've been so bad last year and they were so bad against South Carolina. And, of course, you know, they run 47 times for a billion yards. So this is this is just kind of another statement for us to see what the linebackers can do. I can't speak to this, you know, 3-4, scheme, um, like its efficiency as far as stopping the run. I don't know. Tactically, that's not something I understand. What I do understand is that both Alabama and Tennessee had success rates over 50%. Uh, Alabama's opportunity rate was 65%. Obviously, I talked about Tennessee's opportunity rate being at 48%. Like, so far, now granted, there's some of the you know best teams in the country, but the best teams in the country have been able to run all over our defensive front. So, I don't know. If that changes, that's a good sign for this defense. Uh, if it's not, I'm not sure if it's a long-term indication of what's happening, but you just like to see some fight from the defensive line like they did in that fourth uh, that that goal line stand. Uh, but you'd like to see that you know throughout the entire game. And so he, here's something else that's at least noteworthy. Um, LSU so far this year has not been a great running team. 70 carries on the year, and this is just the the overall numbers, right? This is not going into the advanced yeah. numbers at all, but. 70 carries for 240 yards, an average of 3.4 yards per carry. That's not LSU-like. So that's something that coming into this game, kind of like you said, against Tennessee, it was the same thing. But LSU hadn't had success thus far on the season. Mizzou needs to keep them down. Keep keep a team that is struggling at something struggling. Keep that that trend continuing, and that's that's the way you're going to be able to keep this one close. You still won't win, most likely, but you could keep it closer that way. So, the line, is it 20 and a half or is it 20 now? I forget. Um, I I can check to see the updated, but I've seen it as labeled as both so far. Yeah. Let's, Let's just call it 20 and a half. That's what I'm seeing right now. 20 and a half. PK, do the, do the heroes do the heroes heroically cover against LSU this week? I I don't think so. Um, 
I just think there's too much of a talent gap, man. Uh, I, I would love to take Mizzou plus the points in this game. I just can't see it. So basically... Uh, the way that Vegas does this, they have what is called an implied total. So based on the point total that they are expecting, the over-under on the total point scored and the point spread, you can come up with what they think the final score will be based on their projections. And based on their projections, they basically view this as a 35-15 to 15 game, is, is essentially what it's looking like to them. That seems about right to me, like 34-13... to 13, Maybe Mizzou scores late. They make it 37-20 or something like that. Maybe it's a late cover, um, but I I would probably side with LSU on this one. I wouldn't bet it in Vegas because I think the number's just about right, but I, I probably would side with LSU if I had to have an opinion one way or the other. Well, you should never bet on sports. <laughs> just flat out. Don't, don't do that. That's a very silly way of spending your money. Uh, unless you find joy for like it just bet and just anticipate you never seeing that money again yeah All right, assume go. you're gonna lose and then if you win it's always nice to have exactly um but if you are going to and we certainly don't encourage that behavior you degenerates but if you want to uh what's the blog father say uh bill Connolly says projected margin 14 and a half ooh, 14 and a half hmm. oh really so he thinks he's seen a 31, 31.7. So let's call it 32 to 17 LSU. That would be a cover. I would, t- would you sign, if I told you right now, you can sign up 31 to 17. Hell yeah. I'd sign up for that right now. I'd be Hell like, yeah. let's do it. I feel better about the defense suddenly. I think Basil mm-hmm. probably showed you at least a couple of flash plays. I think Roundtree probably played pretty well if they score 17 points. I think. Now, again, we don't know how they got there. It's possible that it was like a weird fumble that was recovered in garbage time <laughs> that Mizzou ended up sure. scoring with, and they were down 31 to 10 the entire game. It was just over. Uh, but I would sign up for that today. I would too. And, yeah, I don't care. I don't care about how it looks. Like, just just keep the games close. Again, this is about building culture, building the program, developing players, doesn't matter how you get there. Just get a couple W's and look good. And that would that would be a good look. Uh, so I would absolutely sign up for that. 31-17. Uh, I don't think it's going to happen, but um, I would be good with that. I think we all would be good with that. So, uh, Man, so we'll find out tomorrow morning, or I guess this morning we found out. Hello, future you. You know more than we do. Um, whether this is played in Columbia. I heard that LSU already has blocked off uh, rooms for their players. Uh, so it seems like everyone's kind of thinking that's going to happen. I also heard that the LSU delegation would like for it to be played in Dallas. What do you, what would you think of a Dallas game? I don't know if they play in Jerry World or not. What would you think about that? It doesn't make any sense whatsoever. It, like, if it wasn't a pandemic, I would have no issue with it. You know, yeah. like, go for it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, sure. Go, go play in Dallas. I, The home field advantage doesn't matter, so I whatever. Um, but because there is a pandemic i would just assume keep at least one of the teams in their home state like i i feel bad for lsu this is obviously not their doing it's awful um and i hope that everything going on down there is ultimately okay but i mean just play the game in columbia you know make this logistically as easy as possible in a year that is already a logistical nightmare to try to even get through it's amazing that we're still playing these games. It is. Like, I know. It really is. I'm not saying that as in, like, we shouldn't be playing these games right now. I'm saying it's amazing that more of the SEC games haven't been canceled. 
Like, has has a single one been canceled yet because of COVID tests? No. It would be astounding that in the season of COVID, the only SEC game that's canceled is because of a hurricane. That would be incredible. It, it's it's incredible, man. I, I know early in the season, uh, a, a number of Big 12 games, I think it was at least two or three, were canceled. Yeah. Um, and like all of the games that had anybody from Texas were basically canceled. Um, (laughs) I think LS Houston had like three weeks straight where it was just not, but for them to be able to play all of these games thus far, and it's still early, but that's, it's been a pretty good start. All things considered. Yeah. Yeah. Knock, knock all the wood, keep all your fingers crossed and everything that that keeps going. Um, and God, just from a shot in Freud, uh, standpoint, maybe not shot in Freud, but just. Rubbing salt in an open wound that just refuses to close. You saw what Arkansas did on Saturday, right? <laughs> I did. Yeah. For those of you who don't know, Arkansas, poor little Arkansas, an Arkansas football team that had not won an SEC football game in 20 tries, um, went ahead and beat Mississippi State 21-14. A Mississippi State team that uh, put up 44 on LSU. Who's Arkansas's defensive coordinator, BK? Um, Ori Budum. <laughs> Barry Odom. <laughs> oh, Barry Odom. Yeah. Yeah. Barry Odom. Puts together a pretty good game plan against a uh, an air raid offense. I I think I vaguely remember him going up against those in the Big Twelve. He did. Yeah. He did. And uh, Gary Pinkle, I don't think ever lost to Mike Leach. I don't think he did. And Barry Odom obviously was on staff for a lot of those Pinkle teams. Um, and, and for all of his faults, Barry is in just an elite level defensive coordinator. Uh, if you give him a whole, a whole team, he won't know what to do with it right now, but if you give him one half of a team, he knows exactly what to do with it. And, um, Mr. Defense, Barry, but only when you're a coordinator, not when you're a head coach. I miss those defenses. It looks like Odom lost once to Mike once. Leach, 2002, okay. lost 52 to 38, but otherwise it beat him. Yeah. Well. <sighs> I, I I am looking less and less forward to the Missouri-Arkansas game. Not that it means anything. doesn't matter. If it's being played, it's a victory. I understand that. But, God, I don't want to mm, – I don't want to play against Arkansas. I just don't because I don't want those storylines to come back to the top, even though I'm the one that bringing them to the top. <laughs> I was Curse about me. to say nobody else mentioned anything about Arkansas. We were we were ready to get out of this podcast on a high note. Hey, you know, the blog father, our guy Bill Connolly, saying that Mizzou's going to keep this thing close. And then Nate Edwards, nope, had to go, go and bring up what Arkansas did against Mississippi State, of course, who, by the way, just dominated LSU in week one. That's you, Nate Edwards. Nobody else did that but you. I hurt because it helps me feel. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Well, we will see when this game is being played. I'm glad it's being played. Sucks for the circumstances, but uh, like we said, any game is going to be a win. Uh, Any... Last thoughts before we let the good people go. Connor Bazelik, better than expected. And if you were looking for a silver lining in a week two game that you were almost certainly going to lose, that's a pretty good one. You found potentially your quarterback. Now he needs to continue on that. He needs to have a pretty decent game against LSU, who has seen guys kind of like him. 
you're looking for a comparison, maybe-ish, KJ Costello is in a terrible one for Connor Bazelik. <laughs> so um, in terms of the way that they both win, they're not exact replicas of one another, but the way that sure. they both win inside of the pocket, uh, I think you could see some of that this week for, for Connor Bazelik, and that's certainly what you should be hoping for. So fingers crossed that we see more of that from him against LSU, and that's that's the silver lining to their game against Tennessee, even though overall, obviously, a disappointment. What about for you, Nate? Show me some points, man. Give me two touchdowns. Give me one through the air. I'd like to see Bazelik in a full series, right? Like, Give me a full game. Let's see if we can get a fast start on like the past two games. And um, let's cut down on those drops, shall we? Let's get back. Let's get that 81% completion rating. I like to see that. So that's that's going to be our show for today. As always, we appreciate the downloads and the subscriptions. You can leave a comment. You can rate us. We love all types of feedback. You can follow us on Twitter machine. I am at Nate G. Edwards. He is at BK Sports Talk. And of course, you can follow Rockin' Flagship at Rockin' Nation. We appreciate you tuning in this time. We'll try to do better next time. And until then, MIZ. See you again.